0: I have no cutouts. I have nothing that's going to unfold into a whole bunch of people. I just have me. Um, I'll work on that for next week. But I want this morning to simply guide you to a passage of Scripture a little bit different than what we've done over the course of this uh, series of of lessons together. Uh, But it's a, a, a very provocative passage of Scripture that talks about um, a particular teaching opportunity. It was a teaching opportunity in the most unusual place, and its content was was also unusual. It was the teaching of the Apostle Paul at a place called Mars Hill uh, in Athens, or the Areopagus. The Areopagus simply means Mars Hill. It has to do with uh, the gods and, and so on, and it was, it was kind of the focus of the city of Athens in the, the time of the apostles. Athens um, was the heart of the Hellenist community and culture, the Greek community and culture. Uh, by the time the apostle Paul was there, it was sort of waning, but it still was the place where there was a great university and there was great uh, history, uh, great culture in the whole um, time period between 400 BC all the way up until the time of, of the apostles. And this is in the middle of Paul's second missionary journey. So he has been traveling all over Asia Minor and he finds himself with his companions at Athens, or at least waiting for his companions at Athens. And as he's there, he takes a, a walk around. And he is staggered by what he sees, uh, because he notices that that Athens has idols all over the place, and the passage tells us that he was troubled by what he saw. The verb doesn't necessarily mean troubled in a in a terribly negative way; it means that inside of him something was happening, something was stirring in him. Something was making him wonder, something was making him, him kind of meditate on what kind of a city this was and what kind of people lived there. So here's the account and I'm, I'm simply gonna read it this morning and try to explain it as we go uh, because I think this is a kind of the heart of this notion of natural theology. So again, natural theology is that idea that we know things, we have observed things, we experience things that tell us that there is something beyond this world. There's something more than me and all of these stirrings in my heart, including spirituality, are placed there by God because he's wanting us to, to look out, to look up, uh, wondering, questioning, and then responding to the truth of the existence of a God. So, In Acts chapter 17, here's what we begin to find as we have the Apostle Paul waiting in Athens. It says, while Paul was waiting for them in Athens, his spirit was being provoked within him as he was observing the city full of idols. I want to make just observations all the way through here. And the first thing that strikes me is that Paul in his spirit is is engaged. And I, I wonder sometimes if we have the sort of spiritual aptitude to wonder about and worry about the people who are living around us. Uh, sometimes you might find yourself in the middle of an ordinary conversation and it's it's about sports or it's about the events of the times or whatever it is. And you you kind of have something that stirs up in you that says is anybody here thinking about God? Is anybody here thinking about things that are really, really important? One of the things that that I do quite often is conduct funerals. And I remember as I began in pastoral ministry out in Vancouver, uh, taking the first of funerals, and and I dreaded one part of the whole process of, of conducting a funeral, and this might surprise you, but it was the ride between the funeral home and the cemetery. Because I wondered what do you talk about between the funeral home and the cemetery? So often um, the the clergy person gets planted in the car with the funeral director and we lead the parade. In, In this first experience that I had, I wasn't in the funeral car with the director, I was in the family car, which was like the second car back, which meant that the people who had just lost someone were going to ride with me the long distance between the church where we were conducting the funeral and then all the way to Mount Pleasant Cemetery where we would conduct the, the interment. I wondered what we would talk about. I was sure we would talk about the person who had died. I was sure we would be talking about this person's faith or this person's example or uh, the folks that this person had left behind. To my great surprise, we did none of that. Do you know what we did on the whole drive between the funeral and the cemetery? We talked about everything but what would have seemed to me to be important to talk about. Where's this person now? What did this person believe? What has this person left behind? We didn't talk about any of those things. We talked about the Vancouver Whitecaps or something like that. And and we avoided conversation about the thing that I'm sure was on most people's minds and heart. And that struck me again as I was reading about Paul when he looked around he was stirred and it's, it's like he wanted to say, does anybody notice this? It's kind of the, the elephant in the room or the emperor has no clothes on, kind of an awareness where there's someone who you, you kind of feel are gonna say the thing that everybody's thinking about. So Paul says the things that everyone is thinking about and I would challenge you, particularly during this this pandemic time, when, when it comes to your mind to, to bring up the important questions, um, bring them up. Um, wh- when your spirit is stirred, that's not the time to talk about sports or news or something else. It's, it's the time to talk about what is truly important and what would be on your heart and on your mind. So that's how it happened for Paul. And that's how we pick up the story. We find him who is um, looking at the idols all around him, and he says that this this city is filled with idols. So he was reasoning in the synagogue with the Jews and the God-fearing Gentiles, and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be present. In Athens, um, there were at least 12 Idols, um, because there were 12 main deities that uh, those in Athens in their philosophy and, and religion were, were worshipping. Uh, they were uh, the 12 um, Olympians, the 12 original Olympians who were thought to live on Mount Olympus. And if we were to, to go back there, we would have discovered that they would have idols to Zeus, to Hera, to Poseidon, to Demeter, to Athena, to Apollo, to Artemis, to Ares, to Hesophtis, uh, to Hermes, and either Hestia or Dionysius. Um, these were the 12 main gods of the Greek-speaking inhabitants of the town of Athens. So as Paul was walking through the city of Athens, he undoubtedly would have noticed those 12 idols in particular, and and he would have been very familiar with them. By name, he was familiar with them, and they each had their domain. They each had their sphere. They each had their way of interacting with, with humankind. But there was one altar in the city of Athens that was quite striking in that it did not represent one of the 12 deities. There were those 12 deities and then there was a host of lesser divinities um, who again were um, sort of given th- their responsibilities under the, the dictatorship of, of the 12 Olympian gods. In the city of Athens, they had erected another altar And I I don't know if Paul knew about this before or if this was the first time he encountered it, but he noticed that there was this one idol and the inscription on this idol simply said, to the unknown God. And for Paul, that was particularly striking and it gave him an opportunity to talk about the things that were being stirred in his spirit. In fact, if you were an an Athenian, A very familiar thing that you would hear from your friends around was that they would swear by the name of the unknown God. So they would say, by the name of the unknown God, I promise you this is true. So this had no name. They weren't sure who it was. There are various stories about how it came to be, some ideas about something falling from heaven and bringing a miracle and and they were commemorating that by building an altar. But, but Paul looked at this unknown God altar, and he thought, that is fascinating. That gives me something to talk about. And so he, he did talk about it, and we're going to come right to that. Now, he went about his business, which was as regularly, um, to speak in the synagogues when he had the opportunity, and to speak in the agora, or the marketplace. So by habit, when Paul went to a new place, the first thing that he did was find the synagogue. If there was not a synagogue, he would find a stream of the living water where there would be um, Jewish males who were gathered, and if there were enough of them, they could uh, then finally become the synagogue in that that town. So Paul would would regularly go to the, the Jews and would argue with them about the Messiah, would argue with them about his contention that Jesus had actually come to be the Messiah of the Jews. But in in this situation, not only did Paul speak in the synagogue, but he spoke in the marketplace. And he was just as committed as we follow him from then on to reach the Gentiles in the marketplace as he was to reach the Jews in the synagogue. And once again, it speaks of of the integration that we know as Christians do. Uh, When we follow the Lord Jesus, when we worship the living God, it's not something that simply belongs in a church building. It's something that belongs in all of life. It, It belongs in the marketplace just as well as it belongs in the church. And these days are giving us the opportunity to wonder about the whole thing of church i mean how many people are going to church in the middle of all of this Uh, i have friends who have churches that usually would have hundreds and hundreds of people where they're seeing 20 or 30 people gathering in the pews that would accommodate hundreds and hundreds of people people aren't in the church building and so if we had the notion that christianity is something that belongs only in church then we would have to scratch our heads and say well then How can Christianity live? How can spirituality be enhanced uh, if people are not in the pews, if they are not sitting around tables here at Southside at Maine? Well, Well, we know that our Christian faith invades all of life. And in fact, the God whom we serve is the God of all creation. And the Lord Jesus, who will be enthroned, finally, as the King of kings and Lord of lords, will be the one who's given dominion over everything. He will be Lord of everything, Lord of all that has been created. He will be Lord over all of the activities, over all of the geography. And that is the story of the Christian faith. The Christian faith is not an isolated or private thing. Uh, Religion for us is not something that is practiced only in church on Sundays. It is at least practiced at home as well on Sundays and it is practiced every single day, in every way, in every spot that we find ourselves. And so if, if you lapse into kind of the notion, uh, the kind of dichotomy between the sacred and the secular or the Sunday and rest of week kind of you, um, you don't have an integrated Christianity. You're, you're not getting the whole message seeping through into your, to your life. Because Christianity belongs on Monday in the boardroom or in the shop or the classroom, just as surely as it belongs, or even more surely these days than it belongs in places of worship. So let's think about that and let's begin our days and understand at the beginning of the day that this is a day in which Christianity, my faith, my spirituality, seeks to invade my life, even in the marketplace, even in the classroom, even in the factory. And Paul understood that, and and so he thought, well, in the city of Athens, who am I to reach? Who am I being sent to? And Paul had a particular calling to the Gentiles that uh, we see fleshed out in the rest of the New Testament. Uh, But he began as a faithful Pharisee, as a faithful Jewish follower, um, of God, as he understood, as he had been taught at the feet of Gamaliel, uh, growing up and then being trained as a rabbi, as a, as a good Pharisee. But God arrested him on his great conversion experience, and he said, I have people for you to reach, and it's going to stretch you beyond what you have believed. So Paul thought that he was a perfect Pharisee, he was a perfect Jew. And yet God was going to call him to reach beyond and even forsake some of the ways and the notions and the understandings of his Jewish faith so that God could bring the message of the Messiah, the message of Christ, the message of salvation to the whole world, including the Gentiles. And so here in Athens is is maybe one of Paul's first phrase into that whole um, realm of experience where he goes to the synagogue, first of all, but then he immediately also finds himself in the marketplace. And as he's in the marketplace, he's thinking about the spirituality of all of those who were there. So let's understand that spirituality is is one of those witnesses that God has placed within our minds, within our hearts, that are causing us to search for him. And everyone that you know, everyone that I know, is searching for something, they have a spiritual void in their lives. Uh, someone has said that there is, there is a, 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 a void that is only filled by God. And uh, make no mistake that the people around us, even though they talk about the sports that are going on, even though they talk about the economy, even though they talk about business, even though they talk about everything but religion, in their hearts... Every one of them has an ache. Every one of them has a longing that has been placed there. And it's a, it's a longing for the creator that has brought them into existence and who brings purpose, brings meaning to their lives and to their destinies. So what does Paul do about this? Well, as he's reasoning both in the synagogue and in the, um, the agora, or the, the marketplace, he says, I, I've been looking around and we're told that um, uh, some of those who were hanging around uh, in, in the Mars Hill sort of area um, are, are called the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers. So Paul was reasoning in the synagogue with the Jews and the God-fearing Gentiles and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be present. And also some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers were conversing with him. So who were the Epicureans and Stoics? We've talked about them a little bit before. We've talked about Epicureans and Deists. So um, here we have two categories of people. And it's important, I think, to have a little bit of a background as to who they were, what what kind of things were they thinking about, uh, as they heard this character who was talking to them about the idols that were built in their city. So the Epicureans were people. Um, Both of these were schools of thought that followed a teacher from centuries before, from the 3rd or 4th century BC. Um, Those teachers both kind of were prominent to Athens. So Zeno was one of them, and Epicurus was the other. And as we come all the way forward to now and think about Epicureanism, we tend to get the wrong idea altogether. Epicureanism, I think, um, in in our vernacular, has to do with dining. So if you're an Epicurean, you love good food or something like that. Well, it, it sort of has its roots in Epicureanism, but it's come to take on its own kind of life. So the Stoics were one group of people who were over here and the Epicureans were another group over here. And they loved to get into it with one another because they were quite distinct, and they would argue about which was the philosophy that people ought to follow. Paul is going to try to engage both of these kinds of people, and what he says to them uh, is very provocative, and we need to understand what it is they're positioning so that we can understand what it sounded like to them when Paul was saying what he had to say so those who were following epicureanism epicurus were people who vaguely appreciated that there were that there were deities Th- that possibly they thought there were beings beyond this life but it didn't matter and people have said Lately, as they've looked at the Christian church, that, that actually the evangelical church of the West these days is an Epicurean church. Um, th- that when, when they are harshest in their criticism, they would say that evangelicalism takes all of the benefits it can from Christianity without really needing uh, the allegiance to God and the kind of obedience and the kind of precision that is required in following him or following Jesus as his disciples. So we take all of the teaching for all that it's worth if it works in our lives. So here's here's the nugget of Epicureanism. Epicureanism was the way of living in which you, you lived as well as you could, as successfully as you might, as happily as you could possibly live, And if God was in that, all the better. But if not, it didn't matter. It really didn't matter whether he existed or not to the Epicureans. It was far more important to live a satisfying life. So the criticism of evangelicalism is one that says, evangelicalism has been embraced by thousands who simply have taken its value, have taken its benefits without the, the cost of its discipleship. Dietrich Bonhoeffer was a very famous Lutheran in, in the, the time of Hitler, actually. Um, and, and Bonhoeffer wrote incredible books. One of them was called The Cost of Discipleship. And he, he criticized the church on the basis of the church not being willing to pay the cost of following Christ. And, and that would have been Epicureanism if if he were sort of styling it that way. So for the Epicurean, it didn't matter whether or not there was a God. What did matter was that you lived a satisfying life. For the Stoic, and, and again, our use of Stoicism helps us a little bit. If you're a Stoic person, what does that mean? It means you're kind of settled, right? It means you're kind of stable. And the Stoics followed a... Uh, a philosophy of life um, that did believe in a deity or or believed in nature, and believed that whatever deity there is or whatever nature was had things decided. It had a course of events, it had had a plan, and the trick uh, to a stoic was simply to live in harmony with that plan with that master plan that was evident in the world. And so while the Epicureans were just looking at themselves and wondering how they could be happier, the Stoics were asking, yeah, but what is the order of things and how do we fit into the order of things? We might these days be drifting more towards Stoicism where we are looking around and wondering, well, what is the world doing? What is happening? And uh, even in the middle of this pandemic, people are wondering, well, what's the, what's the, the bigger issue here? I mean, what is happening and, and why is it happening? And then how do we find ourselves lining up with what we're expected to be and do, given the course of things? Um, the Stoic didn't think that anything could be changed as far as destiny was concerned. Um, The Stoic didn't think anything could be adjusted, but that either the deity, and and they could range from being atheist to all the way being theists and still be Stoics. And today there are many people who call themselves Stoics. There are Stoic churches, you probably didn't know, um, and they have a religion that is a religion that kind of tunes itself to the way things are, to to the master plan of nature or the master plan of God. So here are are these people who are talking to one another and to anyone who listen at the Areopagus day by day by day and they hear about this character who's telling some other story. And they wonder, first of all, is he an Epicurean? Is he a Stoic or what is he teaching? And Paul sees them coming and he's ready for the argument that ensues. So here's what we find out. As he was doing what he would regularly do in the synagogue and on the marketplace, it says some of the Epicurean Stoic philosophers were conversing with him. Some were saying, what would this little babbler wish to say? Or this idle babbler wish to say? the word is literally seed picker. What is this seed picker trying to say? The notion is that a bird would come and sort of indiscriminately pick seeds from here, there, or everywhere. And maybe later on you'd find something grow. Maybe you found that in your garden this, this spring or summer that something has picked something up somewhere and now it's growing in your garden. Maybe it's the hamster or chipmunk or squirrel or whatever it is that's in in your yard. But it was a a disparaging kind of a caricature. They were saying, who is this guy? I mean, we are either card-carrying Epicureans or card-carrying Stoics. And this idle babbler comes by here and who knows what new idea he has picked up here, there, or somewhere else. But let's hear what he has to say. So as we follow on with the story, um, some were saying, what what does he have to say? Others, he seems to be a proclaimer of strange deities. He he seems to be talking about not one of the 12 or lesser deities or or even the unknown God. He he seems to be talking about some other deity that we've never heard about uh, because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. Um, the word for resurrection, anastasis, could have been construed to be a female deity. So if you want to go to town with that one, that would be fun. So some are saying, my goodness, he's talking about not one of the 12 Olympians, he's talking about another deity, maybe it's even a female deity. Jesus was talking about Jesus, or Paul was talking about Jesus and the resurrection. So they're saying, well, who is, who is this seed picker or, What is this guy teaching? Because they're hearing anastasis and all of this. So they took him and they brought him to the Areopagus. The Areopagus was the the town council chambers of Athens. From the centuries before Christ, it it actually was the council of, of all events as far as Athens was concerned. By the time the apostles came by, by the time Paul came along, it was more the seat of debate about philosophy and religion. So they, were, they had lost their grip on ruling the town and they were left to talk about ideas, talk about philosophies. But they nonetheless convened at Mars Hill, they convened the Areopagus to talk about philosophies, to talk about religion. They were the Starbucks or the Tims of Milton, right? It was where people went if they wanted to talk about important things. If they wanted to get past the chit chat and really go at one another, they'd go to the Areopagus and they would say, okay, what do you think of this? And the Stoics would maybe have their position on something. So would the Epicureans. And so they wonder if they bring Paul along, what's he going to talk about? So that they actually bring him to the council meeting of the Areopagus and they want to know what he's teaching. What seed has he picked up? What's he trying to introduce to them? And are we, are we going to give him the time of day? Or are we just going to say, oh, <laughs> it's just one more guy that has come by with one new idea. And so Paul, as as he was wondering how he could address them, um, thinks to himself about what he has seen as he has walked around Athens. Thinks about the idols that he has watched that have stirred him up and have convinced him that the city of Athens is a very interesting place because it is a thoughtful place. It is a philosophical kind of place. And so here's what we find. Paul stood in the midst of the Areopagus and said, men of Athens, I observe that you're very religious in all respects. I think there are a lot of lessons that we can learn here. And one little lesson is, is finding common ground of some kind, right? So Paul says, guys, or folks, ladies and gentlemen, As I was walking around, I saw some things, and I perceive that you're very religious. A a true thing for us to say would be, I perceive that you're very spiritual. In fact, that's, that's probably close to the meaning of what Paul was saying to them was. And as we have to do with the people around us, wherever they are, on our Monday through Friday or weekend lives, um, we need to understand that, in fact, yes, people are spiritual, and so poking at that and bringing that up is is very important. Yesterday on on CBC, there's I, I listened to this um, um, my favorite music by various um, artists, and yesterday there was a cellist, and she was talking about somebody else. She was going to be playing a recording. And she talked about the fact that this person was a spiritual person who was connected to the world around us. And that's a very interesting description of someone else, that she was able to identify this as being a spiritual person. And by that, she meant that this was a person who was connected to the world. So spiritual for us means something quite different, doesn't it? Uh, as we saw last week, singing in the spirit uh, means that 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 we are engaged in an activity in which the spirit is actually the the conductor. Today, when people say they are spiritual, they don't know they don't mean what we mean when we say spiritual, but they will use the word over and over again. So I don't know how many times in a week. I have a conversation where someone will say, I'm not religious, but I'm spiritual. And I'm happy to agree. And it's shocking to them because when people say to me, I'm not very religious, I will say, no, I'm not either. And they sort of say, well, you get paid to be a religious person, how can you not be religious? Well, because there's some more things I'd like to say to them. But first of all, this common ground idea is wise where we say no i'm not religious i'm not religious the way you think religious is and many times people are not religious because they're post religious many people when they stipulate that they're spiritual but not religious is because the religion that they have tasted is not true religion it's it's really what the people paul was talking to uh, have experienced in, in their formal exposure uh, and their former exposure to, to Judaism where they say, well, we're not religious like that. We're not synagogue goers like that. And Paul says, well, as I walked around, I perceived that you're very spiritual. And they would have thought, well, good. I mean, both the Stoics and the Epicureans would have thought, well, okay, he's, you know, he, he at least has a fix on us. We are spiritual people. It means different things to people in the, the two different schools of thought. And in our day, it means different things to all kinds of people. But it is a witness, part of this natural theology, that in people's hearts, there is something that says, you know what, there's more. There's, there's more to life. Uh, the, the movement that Alpha has been is phenomenal because it starts with that very point it starts with a question mark, and it starts with the the kind of provocative question, is there more to life? And so all around the world, starting in London and Holy Trinity, Brompton, and all the way around the world, Alpha has been used simply as a, a way to ask people, are you asking these questions? Like, is there more to life? What is the meaning of life? Who is God? Those sorts of things. And people are coming and they're sitting at tables eating meals together and listening to talks about those very important questions of their lives. So wherever we are, we have people within arm's length who are spiritual and whose spirituality is a witness in them and a way for us to engage them in the proper conversation that we ought. So once again if there are terrible terrible things that have come by covid there has come an opportunity to say well what do you think it means I mean what does this pandemic mean and and what is happening to us what's happening by our being separated from one another why do we why do we long for the closeness that we used to have to one another what do we miss about the way life used to be uh, and If you're an Epicurean, um, can you be happy these days? Can you make this world work to your end? Or if you're a Stoic, what are you thinking about whether there's someone that is behind all of this or something that's behind all of this, that there's some order of things that somehow or other this is part of? We can get into conversations, I think, quite easily and quite quickly on this very topic that Paul seizes and says, here is an opportunity for me to bring these people on a little journey together uh, to a very important understanding. So Paul says, when I was walking around having a look, he said, 'I, I observed that you're very religious in all respects. For while I was passing through And examining the objects of your worship, I also found an altar with this inscription to an unknown God. Now, where would you go from there? You you, you might say, which is just nonsense. Catch yourselves on. Well, Paul says, "Hmm, let me talk about this a little bit. He says, therefore, what you worship in ignorance, this I proclaim to you. So now these Stoics and Epicureans and everybody else that comes along to Tim Hortons or Starbucks that day for you know, what the talk is about are going, hmm, what's he going to say? How does he know who the unknown God is? How could he know who the unknown God is? Because we don't know who it is. We have that there to be sure that we've not missed an important deity or we have that there because something happened in a cosmic sense that we want to commemorate. But this guy, this seed picker guy, has come along and declared that he knows the unknown God. So if it had been a place where there was murmuring and chattering going on, maybe they all quieted down and they wanted to know, well, okay, what is this guy going to say? What is he going to tell us about the unknown, about the unknown God? So here's what he says. He says, the God who made the world and all things in it. Now, there's his premise. And there's the premise that we begin with as well, right? So whether we have people of the Stoic ilk or the Epicurean ilk or the whatever ilk, we begin with a a contention. We we begin with a claim. We, We begin with a declaration. There is a God who made the world and everything in it and that's a great place to start so if someone wants to know about your spirituality the story of you is the story that believes that there is a god who made this world and everything in it and everything that you're going to say everything that you're going to propose will issue from that fundamental commitment yes i believe in god who made this world and everything in it and if people want to engage you there, that's quite all right. But that, philosophically, is a bona fide place to start. It's, it's a legitimate place to start. Even in philosophy, it's a legitimate place to start, to say, um, I begin with a premise. I begin with a presupposition. I begin with a theory, and then I work everything out from that point on. And nobody can say, well, that's not, you don't you can't start there. Yes, you can, because starting point is a reasonable, respectable way to begin a thought process, to begin a life process. And so Paul says, well, here we go. The one that you're worshiping in ignorance, this unknown God, I'll tell you. The God who made the world and everything in it. So what is he doing? Is he equating the unknown God with the creator God? Can you do that? I mean, can you take that kind of a risk? Well, he does. He goes on and he says, this God who made the world and all things in it, since he is Lord of heaven and earth, he does not dwell in temples made with hands. Athens was a place of great architecture. Um, it was a place that people would travel to to see the temples, the architecture, the idols, all of the things. And Paul says, let's get right down to business. The God who made everything that there is doesn't live in temples. He doesn't live in churches. He doesn't live in synagogues. He doesn't live in mosques. He doesn't, he doesn't live in a building. Well, What are the Stoics and Epicureans thinking of what they're hearing here? He says, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything since he himself gives all people life and breath and all things. So if you're thinking that there's a way that the universe has an order, maybe you're saying, "Mm -hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm, Maybe you Epicureans ought to listen to this because, but then Paul comes close to home and he says, but this God who made everything that there is doesn't live in a temple and he doesn't need anything from you. You don't have to line up and do the things to fit into the order of things the way the Stoics would, would propose. But, You Epicureans who think that you're scot-free, that you have no responsibility about how you live, listen carefully as Paul continues. He says, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives all people life and breath and all things. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined their appointed times and boundaries of their habitation. The Stoics are nodding their heads, right? They're saying, yeah, there is someone, there is something that has decided everything, where everyone's going to be. It's it's all orderly, there's a master plan. Paul says, that's right, there is a master plan. He says, he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined their appointed times and boundaries of their habitation. That they would seek God if perhaps they might grope for him and find him, though he's not very far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and exist. Even some of your own poets have said, for we are also his children. How do you talk to people who have no um, Christian vocabulary or biblical knowledge or um, grown up, Bible stories taught in Sunday school. What do you say to them? You take every opportunity that you can to use anything familiar to them that will keep them listening, which sounds awfully loose and awfully postmodern and off, awfully post Christian. But what Paul does here is he actually quotes a Cretan poet. This isn't from the Bible. Uh, he, he says, in him we live and move and have our being, which is a lovely biblical expression, isn't it? It's not even biblical. It's from a Cretan poet. It's from the arts. So Paul uses this and he says, you know, okay, this is not the synagogue, so I'm not going to go back and try to pull out the law and explain anything. What do I have at my disposal? What can what can I reach out to? And he says, I know In him we live and move and have our being. He goes to the arts, he goes to poetry, and says that's true. So the arts, again, as we talk about spirituality, is is a great arena for us to think and talk and discuss and learn. Poetry is somehow or other from the heart of humankind and an expression of its longing and its searching. Um, I, I am not a poet. I don't get poetry. But I, I've I've loved Malcolm Guite. We keep on popping his sonnets here, there, and everywhere. He's he's this incredibly eccentric Englishman. I mean, eccentric, eccentric. If you've not seen him, long flowing white hair, a long you know. Um, Gandalf kind of beard and pipe. And he's, he spouts off this this beautiful, beautiful poetry. Um, poetry leads us out into the questions that we have and, and the, the wonderment that there is. Um, Paul goes on and he says, in him, the one that made everything that r- there is he doesn't live in a temple and he doesn't need anything from humankind but it's actually in him that we live and move and we have our being and here's, here's what he wants he wants us all to grope for him and try to find him there again is, is kind of the nub of things when I was a kid I was sure every old person must be a Christian why would they not be right I and mean, maybe we we still think that way how can you get old and not believe in god well paul says what god has done is he has he has made himself evident we live and move and we have our being in him and he's he's decided where everyone's going to live and what's going to happen But what he wants is for us to grope for him and try to find him. And there again is is the fodder of conversation where we say, you're a spiritual person. Have you found God? Have you searched for God? And one of of the pitfalls of Epicureanism and the way I think that it, it has actually gripped us is that sometimes people just put the search for God on the back burner. Maybe it is when you get old, it's finally time to look for God. And actually, by the time you're old, you're so cynical and jaded that you're not looking anymore anyway, right? But Paul says, God wants you to, to search for him. He, he wants you to, to grope for him. And if we are talking to people and, and they're not Christian people, they've not been formed in Christianity or by Christianity, um, we could ask them, well, have you thought about God? I mean, what do you think about God? And, and again, that, that's the kind of question I expected would be asked in the funeral car. Is, is this not the time to wonder about is there a God? How, how can that not be the topic of conversation? And Paul says, well, that, that's exactly what God wants. He wants you to grope for him and, and try to find him. So who is the God that you have found? Uh, people will say, I don't believe in God. And, and sort of tongue-in-cheek, I will say, well, what God don't you believe in? Because I might not believe in that God either. So you tell me about the God that you don't believe in, and I'll tell you about the God that I do believe in. And maybe the God that I believe in is a God that you wish the God you don't believe in was. There's a bit of a tongue twister, right? But you say, "What is it you think about God? What do these, these Cretans think about God? And Paul says, I, I, I want to lay this all out for you so that you can do what God expects for you to do, which is to grow and to find him. For in in him we live and move and we have our being, even as your own poets have said, for we are also his children. Being then the children of God, we ought not to think that the divine nature is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and thought of man. Therefore, having overlooked the times of ignorance, God is now declaring to men that if all people everywhere should repent, or that all people everywhere should repent because he has fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness through a man whom he has appointed and having furnished proof to all men by raising him from the dead. When they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some began to sneer, but others said, we shall hear you again concerning this. So Paul went out of their midst. And what was the result? What happened? Some people sneered. Are you okay if people sneer about your faith? The more life comes pressing in or the more life comes home to us, um, the less anxious I am about people sneering because I like the way my religion works better than the way yours doesn't. I, I like the way that the Bible is cohesive I like the way that Christian history bears out the truth of the Christian faith. And so to be scorned for what I believe, that's just part of the deal. I don't get to to shirk my responsibilities by by saying, well, people are, are, they get angry when I talk about religion. They get angry about all of that. Well, let's stop being so Canadian and so nice about things and let's engage one another. One of the things that is missing in our society and culture is engagement, where we can talk without fear. The fear that grips us is a fear of alienating other people or the the fear of um, seeming to despise or shame someone else's beliefs or religion or whatever it is. Um, What I discover is that people of different faiths than the Christian faith are quite willing to talk about their faith. The people who are not willing to talk about faith are post-faith Christians in Western society. We're the ones who are kind of skittish about talking about faith. But your Muslim neighbor or your Sikh friend, they will tell you anything you'd like to know about what they believe without hesitation. And we need to be confident enough to say, this is what I believe. And, and line these things up. God is not afraid of truth. He's not afraid of science. He's not afraid of thought. Um, in fact, he, he invites us to the table um, and calls us to converse with people. So Paul took a risk. What's it gonna, what's it gonna be like when they bring him to the Areopagus? and he tells them about Jesus and the resurrection. Well, some will sneer, and that's fine. But the rest of the story is quite fascinating because it simply identifies two of the people who believed. And one of the people who believed was a guy called Dionysius, and he is what is called an Areopagite. What does that mean? He's a member of the council, a member of the city council a member of the board of these people who gather together day by day to talk about religion and philosophy. So with the sneerers who walked away and the group of people who said, no, we'll, we'll keep listening, are two, Dionysius, Dionysius, and a woman. And they begin the movement of God as Paul's witness said bears fruit in the city of Athens. Spirituality is something that is dear to the human experience. Engaging one another about what that means, however we can, is appropriate. Thinking through how we will present what we believe is critically important. Uh, It's not the time when somebody finally says to you, "Hey." I I hear you, you go to church. What's that about? If it's that's not the time to kind of fumble and and search your mind for something to say. Paul had had his shtick down pat, and he knew his audience. He knew his message, and he pressed home hard the message that he brought w- was to bring to them, and they were not left wondering what it is that he espoused, what, what it was he believed. They, they weren't wondering what seed he had picked up that he was going to drop on them. He said, there is someone who made the heavens and the earth. Um, there is someone who is going to call us to account, and he has given you a pass for now, but not any longer. He has overlooked your ignorance but the time has come that you need to decide. Um, Are you going to follow him or or not? And Dionysius, who would have been a hard-thinking philosopher said, you know what, this is true. And he committed his life to it. It interests me the number of people who, who used to be lawyers that are now pastors. I don't know why that is, but I know lots of people who were lawyers and then they became pastors. Um, Maybe it's because they have logical minds, and sometime, somewhere, somebody told them the true story of the Christian faith, and it made sense to them. They committed their lives to it. But we, all of us, are surrounded by people at arm's length from us, across the table from us, in the coffee shop, in the classroom, on the factory floor who have a yearning in their hearts. They, they have an aching in their hearts. And they want to know how to be the spiritual people they long to be. And there are all kinds of things that are, are, at, our, are at our disposal, including the arts. Paul quoted an, another poet in, the, in this same little chat with the Areopagus. What music do you listen to that makes you think hm w- would give you an opportunity to say have have you heard that that song lately by so and so what do you think that means the the arts the music painting poetry literature whatever it is um I- if we have our 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 proper glasses on we can see that in all of it there there are witnesses in in all of it, um, there are signs of the stirring of the human heart why why do so many novels um, want their mystery solved? why do we, why do we want wrong things made right? Why does poetry and music um, long for something better? look back to what was and maybe wishes it still could be or wishes it couldn't be and wishes it could be better, wishes the way it it should be. What is there about music and its beauty as it it, it lifts us into the soaring heights of a melody and and the harmonies? What is all of that stuff? You know, it's it's not just something that is a part of life that we kind of grab with all of its gusto and say, yeah, that makes my life better. All of it uh, sort of conspires together to make us ask the question, is there anybody out there? Is there someone out there? And give the Epicureans and the Stoics their due. They tried to make sense of it all. But Paul said, I'll I'll tell you a story that makes better sense than yours does. And Dionysius says, "Hmm, you know what? That wasn't just some seed picked up and dropped somewhere else. This sounds like the truth. sounds like something I should commit my life to There are people we know who will one day be the Pauls who will present their faith in a cohesive, compelling way. You just need to connect with them. And the way you connect with them could, at the moment, seem really strange to you. Maybe they listen to country music. And you find a way to say, why do they sing songs all the time about cheating and all, all that sort of stuff? Or someone that loves classical music, and you say, why is classical music so orderly? And how how do we sow the seed? Because in, in its proper sense, we are seed pickers. Um, we We pick up seeds out of people's lives and experiences, and we say, this seed isn't just random. It it all conspires together to tell us about a grand story of the one who created all that there is. And in him we live and move and have our being, as your own poets have said.